Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Glenn Fitzgerald. I've got my coconut water and I'm ready to go. Also with us, Jed Brewer. I was going to ask you where you got the coconuts, but we all know that you found them in Mercia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Joining us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, one of the pastors of Christ Community Church, the younger. Jed, are you suggesting that coconuts migrate? <laughs> it's a simple matter of weight ratios. <laughs> I can grasp it by the husk. <laughs> it's not a question of where he grips it. Well, we've got uh, a wonderful show lined up for you. We've got some great questions. We've got a, a, an article that was sent to us for our perusal, so peruse it we shall. But I'm glad we've started discussing cinema classics because first we have to declare a Christian cinema emergency. Oh, oh no. This is, brought, this is brought to our attention by friend of the show, John Ross. He sent me along the trailer for an upcoming Christian movie called Small Group the Movie. Oh, God. <laughs> now mm. you may ask yourself, is this an hour and a half of one poor jerk trying to tap dance to get a room full of white people to actually talk? No, I don't think so. Um, the, the premise, as described on Self Same Movie's own website, is a filmmaker and his wife move across the country to make a documentary about Christianity's decline. To pull back the curtain, they use a hidden camera undercover at a local small group. As their relationship with the group grows, negative assumptions about Christians in the church break down, putting them in an awkward position. How would their new friends respond when the truth is revealed? So the uh, the inciting incident in the trailer is literally an evil secularist bad guy saying, we're making a movie about Christianity's decline. We're here to make a movie about the dwindling influence of Christianity in America. What about all the spy gear? Well, if you can't go undercover to find the truth, well, then I guess I have to find another director. You two didn't cash that check now, did you? <laughs> Which is yeah. as we were pointing out for recorded. If you'd like documentation of Christianity's declining influence in America... We can send you any number of uh, articles, of academic studies, of just things that Christians have said. Those will yeah. all suffice. You don't actually have to get in the undercover film business. So some other some other gems from the trailer I want to point out. And you gentlemen jump in here whenever you have uh, a, an idea. We can obviously also pitch our own versions here. But So they mentioned, so the trailer goes from, you were making a movie about hating Christians, harumph, harumph. And then the, we moved 4,000 miles across the country to talk about megachurches, presumably from California, where, like, a lot of the big megachurches are. Right. Or from New York City, where, like, Tim Keller's church is. But they go to the South, because you got to do the fish out of water thing. And they literally give this gentleman some spy glasses, like the Google Glass thing. And say, you got to go in and you got to catch him being embarrassing. Now, as longtime fans of this show will know, most of the time when Christians do something that's embarrassing, it's a guy on a stage talking into a camera. Right. Yeah. So, again, I think you may have uh, over. Or just the really famous Christians on their Twitter accounts. Yeah, you may have you may have overshot your uh, your necessity for espionage to catch a, <laughs> a Christian figure, a megachurch doing something. Uh, untoward, and then the there's another beautiful moment where they say, "Well, 
I don't think we're going to get anything out of the big church. We're going to have to go into a small group. I love the idea. We attended this mega church. We just can't get them to say anything embarrassing. <laughs> it was so awesome, Matt. Yeah, he it just exegeted so it awesome. so well. I didn't want to like it, but I do. Well, okay, so this is normally we kind of come into these episodes cold and Matt tells us like 14 seconds before we start recording. Here's what we're going to talk about um, as far as what we're going to make fun of. And all of that happens uh, live. He actually sent us this trailer uh, yesterday and I'm not kidding. When I watched it, I was waiting for it to be a skit the whole time. It is so unbelievably bad. I really, really honestly didn't, think that it was a real movie. Yeah, that's the thing about that. Um, it's it's not, and it's not amateurish in the way that, like, it's, Christian movies have developed. Like, we, we made fun of Fireproof years ago, which I understand when they literally used amateur actors, like a bunch of the actors in that were, like, people from this local kind of mega church thing, which is, is fine. This appears to have real actors and directors. It looks fine. It's just... You keep waiting for, not for a joke to happen, because there's jokes, but you keep waiting for them to to recant of the premise, right? which should be the joke. Like, what's the, the quote I've written down here? They they go to the, the, the small group, which, again, in a, in a better premise, this would be the joke, is in a very opulent suburban living room with a bunch of very, uh, a conspicuously multi-ethnic group of people. It's a United Colors of Benetton. <laughs> If you're from the 80s kind of deal. And the guy said, the main character says, well, I've never been in a small group before. I don't know what to expect. And one of the people says, and I quote, well, I think there will be no shortage of levity. If you went into someone's living room and said, what are we doing here? And they said, well, there will be no shortage of levity. You would leave. <laughs> yeah. Hey, guys. The Coopers are here. Hi. What's up, man? You nervous? We're excited, but we don't know what to expect. Something tells me we'll have no shortage of levity. I'm fine. I'm good. Well, yeah, I think that part of the premise that, that y- you know, you, you kind of have to smirk at is that you're portraying Christians as just completely harmless and wonderful and charming and mostly benign and adorable. But there's all these people that just can't wait to crap on that. And... The the thing is, uh, the Christians are messed up just like everybody else is. There, some of them are working on it, but you know, I don't know how many. Uh, but the, I, I think the majority of people outside the faith would would be fine with Christians if they just, you know, would would leave them alone, not being the way they were. But Glenn, <laughs> we're also persecuted. Yeah, that's you know that. That's got to start wearing thin somewhere in here because, for heaven's sake, I don't know if you guys saw this meme on uh, Facebook that was floating around. It said, if you're against gay marriage, just say no when they ask you. (laughs) And I think that kind of sums it up of like, you know, (laughs) if you don't want to get gay married, just when someone proposes to you, you just say, no, thank you. And that you know, <laughs> you know, the, I, I, there, there, you just can't. It can't be lost on you that there is a vibe of like, hey, you know what? With the virus and everything, 
why don't we just not? Why don't Why don't we all just be good to one another? And because we you know we're all dealing with a lot, uh, that that ought to start breaking through somewhere in here. Yeah, I uh, I found an interview with the writer director, also plays a bit part in it, and uh, here's how he describes his own movie. The experience is something moving and sometimes gut wrenching, sometimes holy and sometimes irreverent. And just like life, it mixes the serious with the spontaneous and the hilarious. That is, uh, that is one way to describe what I've seen. Now, it's possible that they held all the good stuff out of the trailer. And it's, you know, it's a kind of a, you know, it's kind of a psycho thing. We're not to spoil a seven year old movie where, you know, the way they advertised it was about this one thing and it ends up not being that. But, uh, we've gone. We've gone well, well outside of this, friend. Well, here's here's one element of this that I kind of enjoy. So, I mean, I, smarter people than me have proposed, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, that movies are all wish fulfillment. That on some level, sure. you know, every every story, every movie you're making is a movie, is a story you wish could be true in the world, right? right. Um, you know, and again, I think there's a lot of truth to that. So what you wish could be true in the world is that a non-Christian would go to your small group and say, oh, it's not so bad. That's right. That's in a world right. where you could you could wish yeah. for anything, you could have anything your heart desires, you could go buck wild, and you thought, no, I want a non-Christian to show up my small group and go, oh, it's not too bad. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it would be terrible, but it's not, you know, it's, it, these people are okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to share with you guys what I found on the website under the reviews section. One of my favorite reviews ever because of just the pure amount of Christian uh, nonsense it packs into some very uh, haiku-like level of words. This is from a Christian site, which I won't name because I think it's not worth it, but here's the review. One, it's convicting. Two, it's hilarious. Three, it shows the power of community. As we've... As we've mused before on this show, there's, there's this weird thing where there's nothing Christian artists in a lot of areas want more than just pure secular acceptance. So they yeah. carved out kind yeah. of this subgenre of that. Imagine if you opened any other, if you opened Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb or you know Collider or Vulture or any kind of pop culture thing, reviewing a normal movie, and it started with, it's convicting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds awful. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, let's look at it from this point that, yeah, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of small groups and nice little churches that, are, you know, in fact, I, I, if you if you wanted to put the premise out in the world that there that there are more healthy small groups than there are healthy churches, I think that's actually almost certainly true and and, you know, a deep, profound, important point to make. And what have you, you know, and you know that's that's something interesting to talk about. But you know, to Jed's point, I don't know that that's like the ultimate fantasy of wish fulfillment that you want the world to know. I mean, like my my ultimate thing is, you know, I want to see Han Solo and a space monkey shooting laser beams. That's my idea of you know a, a wish fulfillment. Yeah, uh, the, this is kind of like you know, if if you want like that secular acceptance that Matt was talking about, you could just help people. People like that. Yeah, huh? 
That's popular, you know. Or you just make a movie. They made the Ten Commandments a long time ago. That's about the Bible. People liked it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you could, you, I mean, you could spend, you know, at what's almost certainly into the millions of dollars to make a movie and hope like people will wander into it. Or you could talk to people, which is, mm. you know, free. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I had a long oh. conversation with, uh, my neighbor who, uh, uh, lives off, uh, he's, he's my, uh, back alley neighbor there he lives on the other side of the alleyway. And, you know, we, we're having a nice conversation about life and family and everything. It was great. But then he billed you at the end though, right? Like he, he gave you an invoice for services and you had yeah, to pay. No, that was, that was, uh, it was just, you know, a, a nice, uh, thing and you share your thoughts and feelings and yeah. It it didn't cost anything. Did you record it with your spy glasses? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's just interesting that like if a Christian person is going to sit down and write a movie, the place that they start is how do the people who don't like Christians want to tear down the Christians? <laughs> That's right. You know, and then it's like, and so then obviously the first thing they want to do is go into the church and then they'll find out that church is actually awesome. And so that is foiled. And then we'll go into the small group and then you'll, they'll also be foiled because basically the premise of the movie is everything the Christians do is actually awesome. Yeah. I did see one you... review on the YouTube channel that Matt sent us <laughs> where you know, it was, it was a, there was a lot of people that saying, you know, this actually looks really good and not corny. And, oh, look, a Christian movie I actually want to see. And then one guy just said, I think I just saw the whole movie <laughs> from the trailer. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you could see that, uh, you know, I, I think you could see that they were they were trying to, well, they're trying to present Christianity as, as something adorable and precious and stuff which is fine there's nothing wrong with that and you know that's that's good stuff uh but you know just sort of this idea it you know i you know i mean we 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 accept that you know that you know you don't have much of a story if there isn't some form of conflict or challenge that the you know protagonist is trying to overcome or what have you but you know the, just a christian movie in the secret underlying message that's suddenly revealed is hey we you know we're fine that's that's a little self-serving you know yeah. <laughs> the church it's not so bad I, I mean like if it was a movie about how all these church people really really stink but then they figure it out and get a clue and humble themselves in the end now now you got a story the other well, side I, of this is that you know all all of us know people who don't know the Lord in any way, and they really don't spend a lot of energy trying to to like <laughs> ruin our thing. They really don't think about us that yeah. much. That's right. Yeah, there's turns out there's plenty of stuff to make documentaries about, and a lovely one on the HBO about about the Q, but the QAnon. They went to Thailand. They went to the Philippines. Very interesting. Uh, I can't imagine you're going to get funding if it's one of those. We have to go undercover to make Christians look silly. Like, dude, we got, as 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 Lee pointed out, we got Twitter. 
That's all you need. Yeah. 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 We did that. You could, you could film like a Twitter timeline, I guess, and put that up. It'd be like an art piece. <laughs> That'd be something, but you know, I, th- I think we all look forward to the next, uh, the next effort. I think effort being the key word from our friends in the Christian movie industry. And we will be here to, as we always do, uh, offer constructive, insightful, and helpful criticism because that's our role in things. And we'll do that on the next round as well. And we'll, on that, we will declare emergency off. If you'd like to see just a little mini movie that we recorded as a, just a ragtag group of independent filmmakers with one camera in Glenn's basement, you can do that every single week. Facebook.com slash Bridge Chicago. You can do us every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Central Time for our Bridge Live service. Or you can catch it recorded whenever is convenient for you in a video on-demand format over at that same Facebook page. You can also check out missionusa.com slash bridgebox if you want to sign up for Bridgebox, get some good stuff into your inbox the first of every month. And jump to our first question here. If you handle this all the way to the end, we'll give you some ways to get in touch with this, or you can scroll down into your episode description and find the links you see there. Our first question comes in and says, I recently heard a person say that the church shouldn't accept CRT, critical race theory, When I asked why, they said that we are all one in Christ, so it would just be divisive and hurtful to talk about. That doesn't smell right to me, but what's your take on all that? And a very good question and a a topic that is a lot of denominations are talking about, a lot of uh, state governments and schools are talking about, and is something that I think is very well worth looking at from particularly this angle. I really like the angle that our question asker wrote in here. And Lee, where would we start off? Well, this is one of those things that uh, it's the, it's the kind of thing that that the guys on this show, you know, kind of freely talk about a, a lot in our own kind of friendships and conversations, and and could talk about a lot, a lot on here. Uh, you know, in order to kind of keep this simple, and some of these guys may break down a, a few more things that are involved in in critical race theory and stuff like that. One of the things that I think that has been lacking, and, and this is this is a gross understatement. One of the things that's been lacking in the whole Christian experience lately is just keeping simple stuff um, in the forefront. Uh, a, a massive example of that is Jesus said that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If I felt um, unheard and misunderstood and mistreated, I would want other people to listen to me and to ask me questions, to listen to my answers, and to seek to work hard at understanding me and including me and making me feel heard. Um, everybody would want that. If 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 you felt misunderstood or or not heard or cast to the side, you would want other people to listen to you. You would want other people to intentionally ask you questions listen to the answers, to learn how they could uh, move towards you more. And if a group of people are saying, there is a lot that has been um, completely misunderstood, there is a lot that has been complete. we have been mistreated, we have been unloved, we have been unheard, um, the very most basic thing that Jesus would have all of the rest of the folks do is to do to treat them the way they would want to be treated, to listen and to learn. And if they have 
a, a system of uh, of ways that we could listen and learn and and grow and understanding that would be a basic place to start this is you know a lot of times with with things like critical race theory there are there are motivations for why people are against it that are not exactly in line with the reasons that they always give. Sometimes those are political. Sometimes those are financial. Sometimes those are all kinds of things. But for people who love Jesus, one of the most basic principles is the way I would want somebody to treat me, that's the way I need to treat them. If I feel unloved, if I feel unheard, if I feel cast to the side, if I feel misunderstood. I want people to listen to me. Another thing that I would say, just speaking, just let's just Bible something real quick. You know, this person is saying, one of the pieces, one of the reasons that we don't want to deal with critical race theory is because it's divisive, because we're all one in Christ or whatever. Well, you know, we may all be one in Christ in the sense that we all have the same status as being children of God and all forgiven and we're all His. But um, biblically speaking, like in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, when like when John gets a glimpse into heaven, what he says is that there were people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Like there were people from every kind of culture and ethnicity and every kind of thing that you can imagine where where people are people have different cultures, they have different languages, they have different things that their that their ethnic background brings to the table of what heaven is, and those things are retained. All of those differences are retained in heaven. They are not wiped out. So it is not divisive to learn about culture. It is not divisive to respect culture. It is not divisive to move towards um, like learning to understand and love the differences that people have in their you know, ethnic backgrounds and cultural backgrounds and all those kinds of things. Um, that is not a divisive thing. That is a, it's a biblical thing. Heaven celebrates the fact that Jesus has redeemed people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And it is not a divisive thing for us to recognize, celebrate, understand, and lean towards listening and growing and learning about all of those cultures, embracing them. That's not a divisive thing. That is a kingdom thing. And so that this is not an argument that holds up biblically. It's not an argument that holds up uh, in just in terms of, of respect. And it's definitely not an argument that holds up when we just look at the basics of what it means to treat others the way we want to be treated. I think that's a great place to start this off. And Joe, I'd love to get you to pick us up there and really right on that point. So I think what, a big part of what Lee is driving out there very ably is there is a statement of, well, we are all one in Christ, which is true on a theoretical and theological level. But now you're, if someone were to apply that to our current uh, very much earthly circumstances, that kind of doesn't hold water as an excuse, Right. Yeah, there's no question about it. Let's review real quick a really cool uh, verse. This is from John chapter 17, basically verses 20 and 21. This is Jesus talking, and he's praying, and he says, My prayer is not for them alone, them there being his disciples. So my prayer is not for these disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So what's interesting here is that oneness is presented as a goal, uh, which is really interesting and, and, and to be celebrated. That said, there are currently no earthly metrics by which all Christians are one. 
not even close. Um, there's none. And this is the key thing that we really need to look at is that hiding from that fact doesn't lessen the truth of it. Um, there are massive inequities amongst those who claim the name of Christ. There are um, massive divisions amongst those who claim the the name of Christ. And that is true to just, I mean, a laughable degree on, on the global stage. But if you can dig it, that's true in your town. Mm. Wherever you live uh, in the world, there is a huge division that is not fair and not equitable between what some Christians in your town have to put up with and what other Christians in your town have yep. to put up with. There's a huge division in the kind of resources that some Christians in your town have access to and the kind of resources um, that other Christians in your town have access to. There's a huge division in the kind of opportunities. There's a huge division in the kind of respect. There's a huge division in the kind of influence. And that should concern you. As I'm describing that, it should hit your ear, and some part of your brain should be saying, well, that doesn't seem good. That doesn't seem particularly Christian. And you'd be right. Paul actually writes elsewhere in the Scriptures that there should be equality amongst the churches, which there is super not. There is definitely not that. And the thing is, if we can admit that, if we can actually say those words out loud, then we can work towards improving that. We can work towards greater equality. We can work towards greater equity. We can work towards um, more oneness, which is which is a good thing. But if we won't acknowledge uh, that there's a problem, we don't have any hope of fixing it at all. Not not even a little bit. Here's the one other thing that that needs to be said, um, and that is the, the 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 folks who are saying that we we shouldn't accept critical race theory, which is an absurd thing to say, um, and that is because it's hurtful and divisive. What's actually driving this is a political thing. Yeah. Um, this is not about theology. It's not about a specific reading of the Bible. It's, it's, it's about politics. There, there are people who have or are hoping to attain political power who are concerned that if Christians en masse were to start looking at racial and social justice, that would threaten their situation. And so on that basis, they don't want that to happen. So they've tried to convince Christians that fighting for equality is a bad thing. Um, there's absolutely no biblical defense for that. There's no common sense defense for that. But to be clear, you're being presented with something that is fundamentally not just incorrect and wrong, but also disingenuous, uh, because the motivation is not that it would be hurtful uh, or divisive, it is that it would threaten my political ambitions, and that's the thing that I really care about. That is another great layer to add on to this. And Glenn, where do we close this out? Well, I, I love what these fellows have said, and I think they've they've given you a good perspective on it. Ultimately, uh, you know, with something that, uh, as Jed's pointing out, it crosses political lines and then you know racial and ethnic lines, uh, and involves a lot of feelings, a lot of complications. It feels like this might be one of those. Oh, you know, we can, you know, th there's all sorts of different opinions you can have about it. But I think it's it, sometimes it's better if you're trying to look at an emotional landscape to think of it in physical terms. Uh, if you step on my toes, 
I am not interested in your thoughts about my pain level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I don't want to hear what you have to say about how much pain you think I should be in or what attitude you think I should have about you having stepped on my toes. Uh, I think part of the problem comes in where we say, well, I didn't have anything to do with the stepping on the toes part. So I, does that mean that I can sort of dismiss this person's pain? Well, obviously no, that doesn't work that way. Uh, people in pain, that's their experience. It's not for me to judge that, but it's it's also not even for me to evaluate what it's like or what sort of, you know, what's a reasonable response to that, any of those things. Uh, so I, I think part of this is just understanding when you shouldn't be trying to form opinions about things because it, it, this isn't your, you know, it's not your situation. It's not your thing to overcome. Uh, you know, I, I get the uh, idea that this might be div- divisive and, and, and hurtful. Divisive and hurtful is what we have now. We're <laughs> yep. trying to get, we're trying to get out of divisive and hurtful. Right. Uh, so I'm not sure that tracks at all. My my church experience is more with people of color, and so I end up sort of hearing their perspective, I guess, more often than a, a white church-going person would normally hear. And I can tell you that within every denomination that, that we deal with, those African-American clergy in their own denomination feel they are across the board not respected not given the same opportunities uh, for you know advancement they they feel that they're not heard when they stand up and say this has a funny feeling to it we ought to change the wording on this they are met with resistance on that it's a weird thing but we just assume that Within a denomination, for example, you'd have just a core of decency where it would be like, well, yes, you know, uh, you know, you, you you make a good point, and and this is something we need to explore. And yes, it's messy, and yes, there are a lot of feelings uh, that are going on here, and things need to be worked out. But this is an important voice for us to listen to. You you think that would be a feature of those conversations? It's not. Uh, so this is a problem that has not um, begun to be solved. Now, let's also make this clear that um, there are uh, efforts to bring that kind of reconciliation that happen here and there. There are you know, white people with a sincere heart saying, I don't like this, what can we do? Part of what I'm saying is when you have even a sincere and loving and caring effort to try and work that reconciliation, and there isn't any malice anywhere in there, it still takes time and effort to mm. build trust and to start peeling away layers and really investigate this stuff and get into it. So to me, the solution is time and listening and investigation and having a spirit of, of learning 
so the idea that, oh, we need to back off of this and, and not put our hands on it and per- sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist makes absolutely no sense. I think it's a great place to, to close that discussion out. I will uh, add on to this that we, just so we can have our, our terms clear. Um, I think I wonder if one of the things isn't the idea that people and some white people here critical race theory and they say, oh, no, being critical of race sounds bad. That sounds like a negative thing is going to be people yelling. So we'll, we'll go to the Wikipedia page and quote critical race theory is loosely unified by two common themes. First, that white supremacy and societal racism exists and maintains power through the law. If you can't see that, as Jed pointed out, it's because you don't want to see it. Yeah. Second, that transforming the relationship between law and racial power is achievable and also achieving racial emancipation and anti-subordination are possible. So that all sound that sounds like step one is acknowledge a thing that is as clear as the nose on anyone's face. And step two is the idea that there is something you can do about it. Now, that sounds very positive and something we can dive into and that lets us apply all the good stuff these guys gave us and put throw some some uh some reasonable assumptions and some context around people particularly uh structures and organizations that really don't want to get into this and that is something that is worth doing and having our definitions clear so that we can do that in the right way and apply all the good stuff these guys gave us we're going to move on to our next question here it comes in and says I know in 1 Peter 5, Peter says that after we have, quote, suffered a little while, Jesus will restore us. But it seems like Christians really glorify and wallow in suffering sometimes in a really unhealthy way. What's the right balanced way to see that? And another great question, I think a really sharp insight. And Jed, where would we start off? It is a great question. Uh, We want to start here. It's really important is that You've asked, and it's a great question, but you've asked in a sense kind of an academic question about suffering. And before we have an academic discussion, we want to be clear that there are people listening right now who are suffering in their lives. Mm. And whatever you're going through, we are sorry. We stand with you. We are praying for you. We care about you. Um, We don't want you to hear us saying anything cavalier about your situation. Um, whatever you're up against, whatever you're dealing with, we stand with you again. We love you. We're praying for you. Um, and, and the goal is to here, get a little bit better perspective on how to think about the things that we face. Uh, but nothing is going to change the fact that when you are suffering through whatever means and for whatever reason, that just really sucks. Um, and you are due compassion and understanding and, and we have got your back Mm. now with that said, I think one of the things that makes this discussion, it makes it a great question, and and it can make the discussion a little complicated, is that in life, broadly speaking, there are four different kinds of suffering, and we would do well to think of each of them a little bit differently because they're they're not all the same. So one kind of suffering is just general stuff that happens to a large group of people. A flood hits your town. A hurricane hits your state. I don't know, uh, an example I just made up, a pandemic occurs. Um, It's not really anybody's fault. Um, It doesn't, it is affecting you, but it doesn't really have much to do with you specifically. It's just a really crappy, cruddy thing that you are dealing with in your life. The next category is suffering that is specific to you, 
but it is in a sense secular. It doesn't really have anything to do with your life of faith. Uh, not directly, not in a human sense. So, for example, you have a job, you've been working hard at the job, it comes time for the boss to promote somebody, and you get passed over for the promotion. And it's just really unfair, and it's really uncool. It's suffering, it sucks, it's not specific, it is not general, it is specific to you, but again, it's the boss didn't pass you over because you are a Christian. He just, he can't see when he has a good employee, and so he, he passed you over. Our next category is something that is specific to you and specific to your situation, and that also you kind of caused, at least in part. So you didn't change the oil in your car for like two years, and then your car broke down. Um, This is happening specifically to you. Um, It's still suffering. It's really not fun and really not a good thing to have to deal with. But you kind of also a little bit were a party to it happening, so we, we should look at that. So we have those three kinds of suffering, and I think that we can relate to, to all of those. I, I think almost every human being has experienced all three of those categories. Then the fourth one is the idea of suffering for righteousness. That is, there is a thing that God is calling you to do, and you have chosen with courage to do the right godly thing and intrinsic to the work that God is asking you to do there is suffering that has occurred. So as an example of that, um, certain communities in Florida have literally outlawed feeding the homeless. Um, And so suppose that you lived in one of those communities and you fed the homeless anyway, and you were arrested for it. Uh, That would be suffering for righteousness sake, Um, which the scriptures, including in, in first Peter have a lot to say about. But we need to start by identifying those four categories because the Bible actually speaks to those differently, Um, and we should think of them a little bit differently. And Christians very rarely specify what kind of suffering Mm. they mean when they are talking about suffering. The Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, but but the Bible is actually often fairly specific with what kind of suffering it's talking about. In fact, the book of 1 Peter directly speaks about the difference between suffering for righteousness versus specific and causal suffering, something that's happening to you and you kind of brought on yourself. It it literally makes that distinction. But as we uh, answer this question, as I kick these other brothers, we want to keep in mind that we need to be clear in our thinking what kind of suffering we're talking about and on that basis, what kind of suffering the Bible is referencing when it's trying to give us some wisdom about how to think about it and how to deal with it. A really solid foundation to start on. And Glenn, where do we pick it up there? Well, I, yeah, I think we're we're starting here on a really important point that that we can have a completely legitimate form of suffering, uh, you know, a legitimate reason to be in some form of distress. We can handle that in any number of ways, but there there is this avenue that we can go down where there is a wallowing and there there is a, a not dealing with this, uh, but sort of being stuck in that state. Uh, there's all sorts of different ways of of being stuck, and you know we could we could speak about that at length. But let's start here. If I'm suffering in any way, if I'm choosing something that's involving some suffering for me, and I'm trying to make a sacrifice, I'm trying to achieve something good. The real question is: Is anything good actually being achieved here? 
it's if nothing's being achieved, then it isn't a godly sacrifice. It's it's something that, and it's not something God's calling us to do. God doesn't call us to senseless suffering. That that wouldn't make any sense. Um, so it's really important to look at is is something truly being gained. I think sometimes we get lost in that by by saying. I'm creating an opportunity where something could potentially be gained. And that's another way of saying, no, nothing's being gained. (laughs) If you're creating opportunities and people aren't taking a hold of those opportunities, then that's, you know, you're not, nothing's coming of this yet. Uh, So sometimes that's changing strategies. Sometimes that's, uh, you know, creating a, a different way of handling those situations. But just as a starting off point, uh, senseless suffering is not something that that God wants you to be a part of. Uh, but I think part of this is we really need to identify someone in Christian circles that's playing the martyr. Mm. Uh, that's a big, big red flag here. Uh, people who are really going through suffering for um, for a, a working to accomplish something would not describe themselves as a martyr and they wouldn't want that to be applied to them. Uh, I've gone through times in my life where I have been extremely poor while trying to help poor people. And that's a sacrifice that I made. I, and I'm happy to make that. I was extremely unhappy that I had to do it in that way. But I wouldn't describe myself as a victim of that situation. I wouldn't describe myself as a martyr of that situation. I wouldn't want a lot of attention and pity being put on that. I would like for it to be solved. <laughs> I would like for right. there to be more more yeah. resources for for getting that stuff done. Uh, so people who are actually in that role of suffering as a martyr would they just want the problem to be solved. But people who are looking to play that martyr role that are trying to to say, I am suffering, give me sympathy and attention because the goal is the sympathy and the attention. Those people don't want for you to solve the problem because that takes away the sympathy and attention. Uh, so that the, the whole idea of being you know, suffering for a little while and then Jesus will restore us, those people don't want to be restored. They they want to sort of live perpetually in that state. Now that's not because they're evil necessarily. I don't. Uh, we don't want to portray them that way. We want to have understanding here, and I think it's important to recognize some people they they get into a place where they're not sure they would get attention if they weren't suffering. So suffering just becomes a way for them to ensure that they won't be left aside, that they won't be invisible. Uh, they feel like they're seen and heard when they're when they're describing something horrible happening to them and people are giving them sympathy. So part of the solution may be about giving people attention for things other than their suffering. Mm. Just asking them what's going on with them, what's happening with your life. It's sometimes if we understand the roots of this thing, we can kind of judo these problems out of uh, out of being in in the in the you know the flow of what we're trying to accomplish here. Uh, it's important to recognize 
when when someone is is portraying themselves constantly as being a victim, you know, we we're talking about in the emergency segment this sort of obsession with I'm being persecuted and all of that. Nothing good comes out of that. Yeah. Uh, no matter how true or untrue it may be, that's not the relevant thing. Uh, when you're looking for solutions and you're trying to enact solutions and trying to get godly wisdom on how to solve this problem, and you're urging people to create solutions so the suffering stops, that's a beautiful thing. But when you're in a state of uh, trying to play that martyr and and to be seen that way, I think that's that's something we need to be on the lookout for. It's a great place to take that. And Lee, where do we close it out? I mean, we've heard some amazing stuff on this already, and and I really loved the divisions of different kinds of suffering where where Jed started us off on this. And unfortunately, and 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 all of all the guys in the show can say this with the different kinds of work that we've done and around around Christians and in churches and in different kinds of ministries and stuff like that. Unfortunately, this 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 thing that Glenn's talking about, where people get into a place of kind of seeing themselves as the victim. This is kind of the thing that happens all too often. As we were talking about, like like Glenn was just mentioning, Christians actually kind of weaponize the word persecution as a way to stay in a constant state of victimhood. Um, and what's really interesting to me is that the New Testament promises that people who call in the name of Jesus will have suffering. Uh, as as these guys have rightly pointed out, none of that none of that is, is, is arbitrary or pointless. Um, the Lord always has a purpose for, you know, the kinds of situations and trials and tests that he's going to take us through so that he can build something in us and make something of us. Um, and so all of that kind of stuff is an important part of what it means to, to know the Lord. What's interesting to me is, um, continuing on this thought, the New Testament promises that people who believe in Jesus will suffer. And yet, um, the the wallowing is never part of that uh, of that equation. So let's just look at the specific case at hand in First Peter chapter five. Uh, what Peter is talking about is the kind of suffering that people endure in in kind of spiritual warfare. That you have an enemy of your soul. He wants you to be discouraged. He wants to take you out. He wants to kind of uh, get you to a place to you, you'll you'll give up. Or you'll be despondent. All of those things. And what Peter says is, this is going to be something that you're going to experience, and so what your job to is, uh, your job is to resist. That's the verb, resist. And it's not to you know to 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 feel sorry for myself or to you know it's just going it's going to ruin my life or anything like that. He's like, no, you just resist. You if you if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Is is what Peter says. Um, you know other. Elsewhere, when Paul's talking about spiritual warfare, he says, just get dressed and stand. Uh, resist, get dressed, stand. Um, you're going to have difficult things that you have to go through. Um, this, this idea of, of not doing what, you know, what Glenn's talking about here, this, this thing of playing the martyr or you know, kind of wallowing in that victimhood, that is not a, a New Testament value. Um, we, we are going to have we're going to have suffering. We have an enemy of our soul. We have different kinds of things that we go through. And a huge key on this is, well, then, you know, you you resist, you stand, you get dressed, you, you do the things that you're supposed to do, and you keep on plugging away. One of the problems that people have when they have 
um, when they have a lot of this victimhood thing that is, um, in my experience, and these other brothers can probably speak to this too, if they agree, a lot of what the, the missing piece for a lot of people who are playing the martyr or stuck in that victimhood cycle is a lack of humility, which is um, sometimes the reason that you are in this situation is that you did this. Uh, sometimes there's a common denominator of a thing in your life that you will not face, that you will not ask anybody about. And, and I'm talking, I'm not talking about you specifically question asker, cause you're talking about other folks that, that you're around. Um, and this is the thing that we see just all too often with ministry stuff where somebody is unwilling to look in a mirror and ask somebody to be honest with them. And therefore things that would be so simple to, to fix and get past becomes so unbelievably complicated and messy. They would be so easy to fix. They would be so easy to move past if everybody were willing to say, hey, uh, hey, you're somebody that I, I respect and trust. Do you see something in me that, that could use a little work or would you be willing to have a conversation with me about that? Hey, absolutely. Um, that was a that was a really cool and humble tip to come in on. Let's let's look at some of this stuff together. I'd love to help you out. Where people get stuck is if they're not willing to honestly look at themselves, if we're not willing to come in on the note of humility, then we have to protect ourselves with the victimhood. Um, this is poor pitiful me. Everything is happening to me. I have done this perfectly. And um, obviously, I'm just the one who always winds up suffering. A lot of times in those kinds of narratives, there is a deeper, um, there's a deeper truth that we could easily deal with if we had a little humility. And so this is one of the things that people need is a lot of time Christians are hiding behind the victimhood, hiding behind words like persecution and suffering and stuff like that. And what we're really seeing is a lack of humility. And it's all really, really great stuff from all these guys and really did an excellent job breaking that down. So we're going to move on to our next segment here. We're going to do something a little different. We're going to try something out. We had I someone send in an article, as happens to all of us from time to time, and basically say this seemed, this hit my ear a little funny. What do you think about it? So we're going to kind of just kind of walk through it loosey-goosey. I'll, I'll read some key selections, guys can jump in with any of their, their observations. Uh, it's from desiringgod.org. So buckle in. I'm not going to name check the author because as you'll see, or, or, the, the point of this, I want to be clear, is not to, uh, to just rip on the article and make fun of it. We do that sometimes when they deserve it, but those go in the emergency segment. And we believe in very little on this show, but one of the things we believe in is keeping the emergency and the advice part separate. Uh, so there's some good stuff in here, but it has a very Christian article sheen and way of describing things that I think can really obscure the message. And I think a lot of what we get when people send me things anyway, and I know these other guys is kind of a, I think there's something good here, but it's weird. And I don't know why it's weird. So we're going to kind of get into that a little bit. So the title of the article from ZaringGod.org is four defining moments for young marriages. It starts in Charles Dickens' classic, Great Expectations, yikes. I don't know if any of you read <laughs> Great Expectations in high school, but one of the main characters is a 
lady who got stood up so hard she wears her wedding dress until she dies. So great <laughs> expectations of all the novels in the world. You started with great expectations and that's a choice. Uh, so but start number one is the moment marriage reveals your heart. And I think we're, we're going to understand what we mean here by saying this is, is it's close to the mark, but kind of overcooks it. So Sergeant says my spouse and I had only been married for a few months when she said something that pushed one of my many buttons. I remember this overwhelming feeling that if I didn't speak immediately, the earth might tilt off its axis. So I deftly informed her that she was, and this is in italics, making me angry, making me sin. From my perspective, this made perfect sense. After all, before marriage, I'd been quite the specimen of Christianity. But now I was married. Sin was spilling out all over. So what we've got here is is a, a reasonable observation. One, actually, all three of the my co-hosts who have been married a lot longer than I have have made on this show, which is one of the things marriage does is expose where you are a selfish, jerky person. Um, but we we put that in weird Christian language about sin spilling out. It's not mm. necessarily sin. It's just that uh, you're not not as good a person as you thought you were. That's cool. Because there was all sorts of stuff you could do, and no one asked, why would you ever do that? Why would you say that out loud? And now you have to think about those things, and that's a bit unpleasant. He goes on in this section to, God often uses marriage to draw out our remaining sins. And I don't even know what he could mean by that. (laughs) I don't... uh, that that kind of implies that there's going to be a point where marriage is marriage is like a seaweed wrap. <laughs> just kind of pulls out. It's a detoxifying mud mask. <laughs> That's right. You put it right in the valves. The exfoliating nature of marriage. <laughs> That's exactly right. A spiritual exfoliation. But so I I would love to get you guys to jump here. Can we agree that there's there's a decent point at the heart of this? But he's just overcooking it in a way that the four of us, as people hear a lot of preaching, are pretty familiar with. Yeah, I think so. I think ultimately, you know, you're you're looking at, uh, as you say, we're, we're trying to make some good points here, and uh, it, I think part of it is overcooked. I think there's also a bit of um, he's he's using hyperbole a bit to make a point, which is perfectly fine and nothing wrong with that, but. But you got to be able to pull it off. You, you got to be able to pull it off, and when you're mixing it with slightly overcooked points over there, it uh, it creates a problem. But I think to your to your question, it's really a, a matter of are you taking the really tough and and relatively sterile ideals of marriage and putting them into an everyday context, or are you kind of doing the opposite of saying, "Here's marriage now." Let me talk about how these really high-minded ideals don't match up with it, and so you should match up to it. Yeah, the same section he says, he's talking about marriage, says, it exposes conflict typically unearths what's already buried in our hearts. That's, that's true. Conflict doesn't make anything there. It can shorten your, your patience forever. It exposes the selfish things. There we go. We love more than our spouse. Yikes. Actually, more than Jesus. Christ's own words clarify the problem. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. I don't think that verse means that if you load the dishwasher wrong, 
you love that more than you love your wife or Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's a there's a principle that we've talked about on the show before that you know and and I feel like there's a there's a good as you're saying Matt the, he's trying to make a really good point here which is you know you get married and you find out you're kind of a jerk you know and, yeah. and yeah. part of the process of being married is uh you you help each other grow uh you you help each other learn how to frame things how to talk to things uh, how to talk about things how to move towards someone who is in in so many fundamentals completely different than you are you know all of these things are good and 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 we can agree with those points but as you're saying Matt there's something about the there's something about the writing where i, I don't know how tongue in cheek he's being just because i'm not sure we, we you know it's hard to kind of read the tone but there is this christian idea that like you know i'm almost there i'm almost yeah. perfect you know, yeah, I, yeah. B- before I got married, I was I was really really put together, and then I got married, and all of a sudden, it, it almost makes it sound like my wife made me a sinner. Yeah, and I think it's a very good point about the language because I don't know if he's been talking. He didn't. He does not say before I was married. I thought of myself as you know the whatever he says the picture of Christianity or whatever. Right. Quite the specimen. He just says he is. And here's a note for all you, any of you who might write an article at one point. You can't assume that the person reading the article knows you and knows you would never say that. Right. Yeah. And then and right. then there's the and then there's the follow up with which is and I don't I'm not going to remember exactly the way that it was written. Um you just read it a few minutes ago, but the idea that like, you know, as you go through your marriage, your your marriage is drawing out the rest of your sins. Uh-uh. No. I mean, when when if I live to be 110 and just had an amazing marriage the whole time. We worked really hard on it. I am not going to get to the place where I'm almost done being a sinner. That's not the way. <laughs> that's right. not the way that Christianity works. It's it's not that like you're you're this person. This person was so awesome. They were almost sinless. Ooh, mm. almost sinless. The very unsuccessful Christian follow up to almost famous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a really great point because he, he closes out that this it's broken down into four points. We won't get to all of them, but the first section, and he's talking about this with the draws our sin. And the, this quote is when marriage reveals our hearts, we learn that we're not really triumphant warriors who conquer sin in every battle, but weak and desperate sinners who continually need his grace. Who told you you were a triumphant warrior who would conquer sin in every <laughs> battle? Wow, dude. This should be an article about that person lying to you. Yeah. I'm sorry you read that book when you were a young Presbyterian teenager, but oh my good, sweet <laughs> Lord. And I think that's, we'll move on to the next session. I think what we're going to find there as well is this idea of really overcooking things. And I think exactly as Lee was pointing there, putting everything in the context of sin. Right. Like yeah. not yeah. everything's a not everything that's bad is a sin. I mean, there's it's it's desiring God, it's reformed. Yes, in a purely theological sense, everything that is bad is a result of sin being in the world. But I think we need to calm down with that word sometimes, which brings us to a handy example from point two. The point two: the moment you abandon the moral high ground. 
Typically, when I sit down at a restaurant, which is quite a sentence to follow up about the moral high ground, but here we go, I already know what I want to order. I made the decision about one minute after we decided to eat out. For my wife, ordering is an art, and the menu is a palette of colors, from a jumping off point for which she can design her own creation. Okay, we have here a a difference of, of styles and opinion that I think a lot of people who have gotten married or just go out to eat with friend groups, remember a time when we could all do that, wasn't that fun? will recognize this difference in ordering. Then it gets weird. When we were first married, I believed that my decisiveness was, this is in italics, morally better. (laughs) (laughs) I assumed my wife's apparent indecision, the way she uses the menu, was a weakness. He then goes on to use this, this episode, which again is about ordering in a restaurant, to talk about how he's like the older son in the story of the prodigal who did all the right things, but still needed to figure some things out. Wow. And his moral superiority was his downfall. We're talking about ordering a cheeseburger. Are we? <laughs> right. You have to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> Especially on this one, because here's a weird thing to say. I have the exact same dynamic with my wife where I pretty much know what I want to say. And she has some things that can you make it, you know, without this and add that. And I'd like it plain. And when we first started going out to eat together, that freaked me out. But here's the thing. I know why that freaks me out because I don't like it when people are rude or waste a wait staff's time. And here's who doesn't care. If you ask to get your sandwich without a few things, the wait staff, right. they just write it down and do it is no big deal. It was something I was making a big deal about of myself because of my desire not to inconvenience people because of the way I was raised. That's all me stuff. None of that is sin. None of that is Jesus. None of that is a moral acuity. It's all yep. fine. You, you could just go out to eat. How about that? But yeah, and I think there's a little bit of a minimizing element to that as well. I mean, I've done, I, I've had wronger attitudes than that this week. Sure. Uh, so, you know, the idea of the big moral failing he had was, you know, being frustrated with the way his wife ordered, ordered food. You're, you, you know, <laughs> you're not getting, I mean, there, there's only certain things you want to put in an article for everybody to read, but, and, you know, you can get into you know, TMI situations or whatnot, but, you know, I think we're, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, stuff that someone who had big problems might read that and say, ah, you know, but I, I think that also points to a larger attitude of seeing marriage as a media event. Uh, it, it is, uh, presented to the public via photographs and, uh, videos and, uh, oh. Of course, the wedding itself is is a media event. It's it's recorded and and meant for uh, constant viewing by, by I don't know who, but you know it's that. Uh, but that gets us into a mindset that marriage is public as opposed to a private thing, and that it's important for its public image to be seen a certain sort of way. And I I think that can get us into some some pretty bad directions as well. I think that's absolutely right. We'll move on to the, to the third point here, but first I will just reiterate there. There's a great thing to 
to recognize, and we've actually talked about in the show, to recognize yourself in the older brother in the prodigal son story. That's actually very, very important. It's an underdiscussed aspect of that story. If the thing that makes you think about that is going out to dinner, that's you may be putting too much on these interactions. That's all I'm bit. saying. <laughs> but we move on to the third thing uh, where he talks about point three is the moment you become best earthly friends. Uh, I don't know how this gentleman got, how young this gentleman got married. Uh, if he writes for desiring God, I'm, I'm prejudiced. I'm prejudicing myself to picture maybe someone who went to a certain kind of Christian college, but let's work on becoming friends with your spouse before you marry him. I'm, I'm just throwing uh-huh. that out there. Um, <laughs> This doesn't have anything to do with our larger point, but he threw it in there and it just must be acknowledged. It says, first, being a good friend begins vertically rather than horizontally. Which sounds like something you may have heard in a in a sermon about something else, about focusing on the vertical rather than the horizontal. I'll just throw that out there. But uh he, he's gonna say he's talking about, you know, your your and again, a, a point we've made on this show before, a, a point I've heard Lee make uh, greatly to uh younger folks getting married that the, your 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 merit your spouse has to be your primary a relationship on earth. They need to be your best friend. As as Glenn has pointed out many times, it really should be a relationship that uh, really defies label like best friend. It should be more than that, and that's absolutely right. But then things get weird. Second, your best friend on earth must be the one you sleep with every night. Cool. It's great for husbands and wives to have interesting friends in their life. They add richness and spice. But remember, a man of many companions may come to ruin, Proverbs 18.24. What? Again, you didn't have to put a Bible verse there. Are you making a fairly fine point about your, this must be your primary friendship? Totally cool. Totally fair. You don't want to displace that with your other friends. I'm not sure where in kind of that. Also, if you have too many friends, you will come to ruin. <laughs> I think we may have, again, we, we may have just overstepped that one. And the, uh, the last point is about sex. And I did not read that one because I don't want to read when anyone who writes for desiring God has to say about sex. I'm just going <laughs> to just skip put- it that out there. I mean, maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you, know, you gotta, you gotta know when you've hit your limit, but, uh, fellas. So that's, that's, uh, desiring God's four defining moments for young marriages. And again, we're, I think we're finding some things here that are true of a lot of the, the kind of main line, your desiring God, gospel coalition, relevant magazine, uh, Christianity day stuff. Um, I think there is uh, some good stuff in here, some good points we would agree with, but there's a a house style, maybe the best way to put it, of these publications and these ideas that is just so can't get out of its own way that it makes That's some it. things a little weird. weird. And uh, do we yeah. have any any yeah. final observations on the four defining moments for your young marriage? Nobody wants to point out that they think their wife orders food in a weird way that tempts them to send and put that on the internet or anything. <laughs> We're all good. Okay. So I, I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, let us know if you have other articles you want us to kind of break down and look at, I hope you will uh, send those our way. It's uh, you know, we're almost 500 episodes in. Why not? Why not go ahead and screw around with the format now? When, let's go ahead and do that. But a uh, good stuff, some great questions. If you have a question for us or anything you would like us 
to peruse say that podcast at gmail.com the bridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask if you'd like to keep that anonymous we will take out the song this week this is uh something we played on our bridge live service available at facebook.com slash the bridge chicago every tuesday at 7 30 p.m central time to a very much rocking out at acclaim this is the bridge loud version of just as i am mm. excellent stuff there i'll tell you that thanks for listening just remember we love you god loves you there's nothing you can do about it the say that podcast dealing with the horrible persecution of people not linking to this podcast and telling their friends about it maybe you could do something about that i don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> just as i am without one please Thy promise. I-